for me, the thing I've been holding on to for the last five years is I actually haven't found a better story than Jesus's. And I love the wholeness that a, a serious look at the life of Jesus brings. Like I love the life of Jesus. I love the sacrifice of Jesus for his friends. I love the compassion of Jesus. And so even if this whole thing wasn't real, I would still want to follow the way of Jesus. And so I stick around. And so I think there's like this journey of discovery that particularly marginalized folks and women in scripture teach us is like, go seek out Jesus because if you do, it's probably going to be really good. Today you get to hear from Brandy Miller. I've been following Brandy for a bit, as I'm sure you have too, and I'm always intrigued by how well she holds things in tension such a way as to say the hard things that need to be said, but save space for nuance and growth and, well, Jesus and scripture. As I'm sure you guys know by now, I do love the Bible. But as we all know, it's been used as a weapon to enslave and kill and oppress and suppress. And I am committed to doing whatever I can do to undo those harmful narratives. As Dr. Will Gaffney once said, I don't run from a hard text or a fight with a hard text. I believe in wrestling the bruising words until I squeeze a blessing out of them, no matter how down and dirty it gets or how out of joint I get. Like Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32, studying the Bible is a wrestling match. It's often painful, but I do believe that you can and I have squeezed a blessing out of it. And oftentimes that blessing is just understanding and knowing a little bit more about the heart of God. And like I tweeted the other day, I love that rabbinic tradition talks about scripture having 70 faces. I've heard it compared to a gem or a diamond. In order to see all of its beauty, you have to keep turning it. And as the light refracts through the various faces, new and unexpected things are revealed. See, the beauty about the Bible and about Jesus is that his story and the entirety of scripture has been read by millions and millions of people all over the globe from every walk of life, ethnicity, race, and every community of people that reads it. And every singular person that is touched by it has a personal experience with it. And like Brandy says, there's something about how marginalized people read the stories and understand the message of freedom and liberation and wholeness and healing and even salvation. And really, that has been monumental for me in my journey of reconstruction and growth. It's getting to hear and understand how so many different people hear and understand it. And a part of this is, as Rachel Held Evans once said, it's not trying to avoid the tensions and questions produced by scripture, but using them as opportunities for engagement, invitations to join in the great conversation between God and God's people that has been going on for centuries. And so I hope this episode will be a further invitation into this grand conversation, that you'll be as challenged and encouraged as I was. And if you like this episode, don't hesitate to leave a review and follow Brandy on Twitter. You won't regret it. It's at Brandy, B-R-A-N-D-I, Nico, N-I-C-O, all one word. And yeah, welcome to the protagonistas. 
So yesterday, in preparation for this interview, I went like on a total research, like reading like all your articles <laughs> that you've written. And I was actually surprised by how similar, like a lot of our, how our stories sort of intersect in the same, um, like I read in one of, the, I think it was one of the last articles that you wrote for the Salt Collective about how, or I don't know if it was actually one of the last ones, but about how you grew up in a very white, I guess, Christian setting. Um, you didn't grow up Christian, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then you, but you were like indoctrinated by like, you know, white, very white Christian um, theology. And I, that's very similar to like my experience. I didn't grow up in the church. And then um, I became a Christian as an adult. And then, you know, pretty much the only thing that I knew was Southern Baptist, you know, culture, life, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I ended up going to a Southern Baptist seminary and it was like very fresh like after I became a Christian so like Christianity was new to me and then I mean that was like the first thing I was introduced to so it was all really yeah it was like a surreal sort of experience so yeah and and so a lot of my journey of like decolonizing has it's I mean I hesitate to say deconstruction but I mean yeah that's a fine word but a lot of like (laughs) a lot of my like deconstruction journey has been so multi-layered um because you know being a Latina woman on top well being a Latina being a woman and you know coming out of fundamentalist whatever so it's like a multi-layered sort of decolonizing and I imagine that you you know understand that layered um coming out of that and reconstructing all that so if you just want to share a little bit about um yeah, like what that journey was like um, as a woman of color. And then um, just talking a little bit about growing up in just a white setting. Yeah, I yeah, I think our stories are very similar in that way. I think I also hesitate just as an aside to use the language of deconstruction. Um, yeah. I think it feels like very nebulous and very white in yeah. most ways to me. And so I think for me, I've been calling it learning and unlearning. Yeah. Um, and so I've been asking, like, how am I unlearning <laughs> a lot of things? Um, and I think to that end, a lot of my unlearning from my predominantly white background, from my very conservative Baptist background, started in college. Um, it didn't actually start with race. It started because for the first time in my whole life, I saw a woman preach. Mm. And I didn't think that that was something that people could do. Yeah. And so I think there was ways that a lot of my journey has been unlearning multiple layers to actually get to talking about race and white supremacy like I do now and using um, whatever identity thing that I feel like has been put in front of me or that's being challenged to actually enter in as a gateway to those points mm-hmm. or to, to talking about race, I suppose. Yeah. Because uh, I remember walking into a the first intervarsity meeting I ever went to and a woman was preaching and I was like, Oh, this is not biblical. These people like don't follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember thinking the and, same sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and I've had, you know, I have men walk out of meetings that we are in when they see that a woman is leading. So it just feels like very familiar and very mm-hmm. normal to me. Um, but what struck me about the community that I was entering into was that they were actually just really good friends they seem to care about people and be less concerned about morally controlling people and more interested in having fun and playing games and learning how to listen to the voice of God and taking scripture seriously. Mm-hmm. And I thought like in my own judging them about their bent on justice, that I was being somehow biblical, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But what the reality was like, they knew scripture way better than I did. And they were living out scripture way more effectively than I was. Yeah. 
And so I think for me, the biggest linchpin in my journey has been realizing that I didn't know scripture like I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had been taught scripture. I had been taught an interpretation of someone else's interpretation of Paul. Like mm-hmm. that is what I had been taught. Um, and I knew very little about Jesus. I knew that Jesus died and that for some reason his death was more important than his whole life and that you just need to focus on that. And if you told people that Jesus was dead and then not dead enough that people would love God and you've done your job for Jesus. And so I think it felt very challenging to begin that deconstruction process, just knowing and hearing the ways that my interpretation of scripture was not only not accurate it was not just and it was not right and so i just think i just had to start on learning really quickly so that was a little convoluted in mixing the two of those questions no no together that's perfect and i think what i appreciate um just from the stuff that i've read and in your tweets and all of that is that i think it's important to be able to hold that tension you know the tension with the bible and the tension with interpretations of the bible and and not be so quick to hey, I'm throwing this all out or all of this sucks or, you know, whatever, you know. And I I think that something that I appreciate about you and something that I I also try and do is like, okay, like how can we understand the Bible responsibly? How can we study it responsibly? How can we interpret it in a way that takes all of it into consideration from the beginning to the end that, you know, takes even just the the different parts of it and what they're trying to communicate, um, you know, the difference between a letter and a poem. And, you know, and so I, I appreciate that, that, that you still sort of, you know, do that and hold that intention. And so as far as like the Bible, how has been, how has your relationship with the Bible evolved? And I know you said that, that, you know, you, now, the way that you read it now is very different. Um, but is there like, I don't know, a specific thing that happened or, or a specific something that clicked in you and, and just changed your relationship with scripture? Yeah, there were a few things. Uh, I think the main thing that I learned from my friends early, I guess late in my teens and early in my 20s, was that you could ask questions about the Bible and that was okay. Yeah. Um, that it wasn't like some unspiritual backsliding thing to have doubt or to have questions um, or to even just say that you don't understand something or to, to claim, which I think was the hardest part for my communities that I grew up in, was that the Bible wasn't clear. Like just to name, hey, like I have questions about this because it's not cut and dry. It's not mm-hmm. obvious. It's not, it doesn't have a central idea that we're trying to excavate right now <laughs> in the same way that I thought it might. Yeah. Um, maybe this thing is just confusing or maybe this person in this passage was angry or maybe David's not an archetype for Christ because he does like all this jacked up stuff. Maybe the questions that I have are part of the journey toward reading scripture and that getting answers isn't the point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I've loved, I've loved learning to ask questions about scripture and to just be uncomfortable with it. You know, like, Hey, that thing that happened in scripture is nonsense. Like yeah. that interpretation that we have actually doesn't make sense in any other context unless we're trying to justify something in the Bible to make it look pretty. And so I think there was, there was like that piece, the question asking piece. And then there was also just realizing, I don't think I knew that there were other ways to interpret the Bible other than what I had been given. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a highly apologetic centered, again, Southern Baptist, Western Baptist background. Mm-hmm. And so the most holy thing that I was taught to do was to eliminate all questions by having a ready response for, you know, the hope that you have in you. Yeah. <laughs> it was to... It was to quote the Romans road. It was yeah. to, to walk people down 
a gospel journey and draw a bridge diagram. And it was to talk about why science wasn't valid because the creation myths, it was, it was all of that. Um, And when I realized that there were people who were interpreting things differently in ways that actually lined up with my lived experience and not just an abstract thing I was being invited to engage with, Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, the Bible not only is more interesting than I thought, it has more value than I thought. It has more life and potential than I thought to transform people's lives. Amen. I always say that like it was actually like studying the Bible responsibly that led me to my deconstruction or as you say, like unlearning journey. And it was reading, you know, continuing to read the Bible that led me back to my, you know, reconstruction or my relearning journey, you know. And so it, it really is it makes all the difference as far as how you practice, how you view. Um, and I, I really like that you said that it aligns with like your lived experience. I think that's the point, right? <laughs> like, um, and I also think it's so interesting because many people are like, they want to go straight to application, but then the application actually has nothing to do, you know, with yeah. the, you know, the life you're actually living. It's like some, wait, what, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So I also think because, you know, and I, and I think this is about myself, so I don't want to like speak for you. I guess I'll just ask you, but I, I feel like because I come from, you know, I understand. So, okay, well, I'll backtrack a little bit. So when I left, right, it was a very, very loud and, and very um, public exit from the SBC. <laughs> Mine was. And, <laughs> and when I, you know, I transferred, I moved across the country, you know, I did all that. And I, I, I just started my, my own kind of journey of, of, okay, where do I stand on this and where do I, whatever. And when I got here, and when I say here, I mean to California because I was living in, in the South. And when I got here, I, I remember like having conversations with people and like literally bawling my eyes out because I'm like, oh my God, like I'm just now learning about, you know, all of these theologians that I wish I would have learned about years ago. And I'm just now, you know, and I've wasted so much time. And here I was, you know, two years at a seminary where like I was just learning things that have nothing to do with reality. And, you know, and I was, and I would like sob, you know, like, I can't believe I wasted time. Like that was like my main thing. Like I wasted time, you know, Mm. and a lot of people, um, thankfully, because I've met a lot of people that didn't grow up, you know, in that. So they grew up, whether it's Methodist or, you know, or whatever, just very different sort of ideology and very sort of different practices and beliefs. And a lot of people would tell me like, well, no, you know, it, you have a unique, position because you understand it you were there you were in it you're not just speaking as an outsider but like you sort of are speaking as an insider because that was your group that was like your clan of people um and so how do you and and i say that to to say that i feel like having a unique position as a bridge builder and i use that word with caution um but what how do you see yourself do you see yourself as a sort of bridge builder between um, whether it's fundamentalism, conservatism, uh, white evangelicalism um, as a sort of bridge builder to yes, call it out, say the things that need to be said, um, but also, you know, invite a larger conversation? It's a good question. I, I don't know that I actually see myself as a bridge builder. I don't know that I would say that's part of my practice or like how I think about practitioner work or or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think that that has been a practical implication Mm -hmm. um, of where I've chosen to be. And so I think my life does a lot more bridge building than I intend in my actual, in any kind of discourse that I do. 
Um, and so what I mean by that is that I think for most folks who only know me from Twitter or from writing or speaking or whatever things, what most people don't realize is like I have a full-time job as a campus minister mm -hmm. uh, working with students in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, where it's like, you know, I live in a city that's 87% white at a campus that's predominantly white. There's 500 black students out of 24,000 on the whole campus. Yeah. And so a huge portion of what I do is work with white students as they enter in. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's less, the, the work to me feels less like going, hey, you know, screw white evangelicalism or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's more saying, hey, I actually think the picture that you have of Jesus is too small and it doesn't actually do anything to transform your life. Yeah. The thing that it seems to do is make you feel guilty. Um, it makes you feel like, if you read and abstractly interpret a daily devotional every day that God will love you more, mm. uh, it makes you feel like your abuse and trauma don't matter because when you die someday, you'll be with Jesus. So pain will be over. Like it seems to do all of those things. But when you're in present suffering, when you're trying to figure out how to have friends in college, when your parent or best friend dies, when yeah, you're assaulted or traumatized or experience racism or homophobia on campus, how does the gospel actually intersect that? Mm. And I think that as I invite students into that bigger picture of who Jesus is, there's a pretty natural falling away of a lot of the ideologies that they come in with. Yeah. Because they realize that like faith isn't just about being right. Um, there's yeah. that, what's that kid's book? I can't remember what it's called, but the thesis of the book is basically if you have the choice between being right and being kind, choose to be kind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that there's a way that like as I teach students to see Jesus and to have a natural bent toward compassion, that there's a natural way that all of that other stuff becomes less appealing, that power and rightness and all of that becomes less the center. Mm -hmm. So I think in that, I think I develop bridge builders much more effectively than I am one myself. Mm -hmm. So like I send out students who are able to have conversations with their parents or with their later spouses or with their churches or leaders that they can do that bridge building. Mm -hmm. And so I just choose to pour my life pastorally into students, show them a, a new picture of Jesus or a picture of Jesus, a lens to which to see Jesus and trust that that more beautiful picture will do the bridge building for me. So I love that. I mean, yeah, like that's essentially discipleship, right? Like yes. teaching other people, yes. yeah, to, to be bridge builders. And I think that that's beautiful um, because, yeah, I mean, the, the white students are going to be the ones that are going to have those conversations with their white family members and their white, you know, community um, and, and all of that. So your transition um, from where you were to where you are now, what was that sort of, what did lament look like in that process? And um, and then going from, or whether you just sat in lament or, you know, moving from lament to um, sort of, you know, celebrating or upholding a new, I don't know, viewpoint or, or thought process. So what was that, you know, kind of journey like? Um, or if that's still something that you're, you know, you consider yourself in or, or yeah. Yeah, I don't really know how to answer that, I guess. Mostly because I, like, if you want to be like full Myers-Briggs or whatever, I'm like the highest T there ever was. And to use all of the tools, I'm like an Enneagram 3. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, very unaware of my feelings yeah. most of the time. And so I present things and I interpret things and I experience things in a very matter-of-fact way. And yeah. it takes me a really long time to dig up, like, what I might actually be feeling. Mm. Um, and so a lot of my lament and grief over the last few years has felt more 
um, macro level, it's felt to me like more in the spirit of, and I'm not calling myself this, but in the spirit of the prophets Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who like see the thing from the outside, even though it has a direct implication on their life, like Nehemiah, right? He sees the, that the walls are down and his first response is to lament. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something probably personal happening for him, but we don't hear that part of the story. We just hear like, this thing has happened and it's not right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of my, my lament has happened in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that I can name that there's a lot that I have lost to, to be where I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it was anywhere from being disowned by most of my white family right after Michael Brown Jr. was killed. Mm -hmm. I lost like the entire church that I had grown up in. Um, Like, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of ministry support, yeah. all of those kinds of things. But I think that the because of the pace of like political nonsense since like 2004, you know, before like 2004, 2005, yeah. Because of the like the pace of it, I just don't know that I've had a lot of time to fully feel it all. Yeah. Um, and so I'm actually working through that slowly. I did a round of therapy. Can I name the things that I've lost? Can I name the cost of doing this work? Yeah. Um, can I name the cost of having a theological reframing that makes people call me a terrorist on the internet or whatever? <laughs> people say some really silly things. Really do, yeah. Um, I'm like a terrorist. You have a really low bar for terrorism. <laughs> like, yeah. So, so I think there's like all of that. There, so I think the lament and grief piece feels uh, like a big question mark in my journey. I don't know that that's something I'll ever really fully do yeah. um because i think i'm just like moving i've moved past a lot of it functionally at least uh-huh. but in terms of like who i am now and like what it means to be in a more like uh, i don't want to use the word liberated because to me there's something about the word that doesn't feel like it fits what i'm trying to say but i think as i become more fully myself mm-hmm. and more fully human and pursue wholeness in the world I'm finding places where things are becoming new and whole and to me that like I think that's like a pretty good antidote for grief or lament or like the not even lament lament's not thing you like grief I just I don't know I think I feel confused about it because I'm a lot of my inner life work isn't fully done obviously yeah but when I see like what's happening in the lives of my students or the ways that they're choosing to do justice and to become more compassionate people, uh, I think I can celebrate the work that's been done in me that then impacts them. So I guess maybe that's what I would say. I totally get that in the sense of like, you're learning as you go and as a, someone who is invested in, in mentorship and, and pastoral work, that your sort of your healing or your making sense of it comes through in, in yeah, the people that you are, you're pastoring and ministering to. And so I totally, I totally see that and I get that. White people can claim that their theology is the supreme truth. And then in having access to spaces to write books on it or have leadership positions to back it up, reify the notions that their theology is the truth because the resources and the legacy of leadership backs it up. This gets sticky, right? because it actively marginalizes all other people groups theology as optional or elective. 
rather than the core of who God is, because if we are all made in the image of God, then every image of God has something to contribute to the greater experience of theology. We have taken the Jesus who actively saw oppression and did something about it and turned him into a prop for perpetuating political agendas. Or maybe worse, we have sat passively while other people build and promote this American white Jesus caricature, and then we critique them from the side while benefiting from the systems that they create. I want to quote something that you had said that I really liked. So you said theology is a lot like food. Each people group takes ingredients and makes something of them that reflects who they are as people that nourishes the body and serves to tell stories of people's experiences. White supremacy in theology functions like a person who comes into another culture, tries the food, and because they don't like it and didn't make it, claims that it is not food at all, while trying to replace that people group's food with their own in the name of true health. I thought that was such a great <laughs> description of that. Um, so yeah, if you want to just unpack that, talk a little bit more about that theology being like food. Yeah. So I love food. So yeah. that's a huge part of my life. Yeah. But like, I think about like, even my own food journey, right? I grew up in a white family and was never introduced to like pho or yeah. like really like all of the, my favorite Korean foods. You know, like, it wasn't, you know, like I have, there's fun. There's all the Korean foods that I eat and there's uh, eating, like learning how to eat foods that I would have never considered before. Cause I thought they, I was taught they were gross or wrong or mm-hmm. too much or whatever. And so for me, like, I think it is a lot like food because we don't know that we can understand like or benefit from something until we try it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with white supremacy is it teaches us that uh, trying things that, exploring other options is a deviation from truth mm-hmm. that if we know the one truth why would we look for anything else mm-hmm. and then we quote scripture around our one singular truth and if someone else has an idea that counters that we assume that they're just not treating the bible with enough respect or you know it's like when people use the phrase the bible is clear yeah uh mm-hmm. and i'm like okay well, one the bible isn't clear at all but two like what you think is clear is your interpretation of the bible mm-hmm. And that's fine, but you need to name that that's that. Yeah. And so I think that there's, there's like that piece. There's the, like, you don't know that you could believe something different until it's presented to you. But white supremacy in, in its paternalism and its unwillingness to let its, in, in people's unwillingness to let their congregants or the people that they're leading think for themselves would rather indoctrinate and control rather than disciple, like you were saying before. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's ways that if we disciple people, we introduce people to lots of different experiences and ideas um, and ways of knowing Jesus and being in different places with Jesus that don't exclude, you know, that aren't just like uh, focused on one ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important because like Jesus's primary sentiment in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's like the phrase, like, you've heard it said, but. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus is reinterpreting things all the time. Jesus is doing some pretty wacky interpretations of the scriptures himself. Yeah. Like, he's interpreting Moses in a way that Moses never would. Like, yeah. he's interpreting <laughs> the stories and judges in the ways that people wouldn't do. He's just doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, if Jesus is reinterpreting the scriptures, then any kind of theological ideology that white knuckles some semblance of truth doesn't actually offer much at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think for like me and my personal life, uh, I didn't realize 
I don't know. I just didn't realize that people of color were doing theology. Yeah. I didn't realize that queer folks were doing theology. I didn't realize that women were doing theology. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I started to ask as I, as people started to present me with all these new ideas, like, well, why haven't I ever heard this before? Um, and as a, you know, I, my undergrad is in ethnic studies. And so I studied racism in the church for several years. And I was just thinking back on all of the people that were formative in my thinking or like the people who you're like, who are the best Christian authors? And people were like, C.S. Lewis, yeah. N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. And then like maybe like one token Asian or Asian American person, like yeah. Robbie Zacharias was that person in, in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. I think and it's Francis, Francis Chan, Chan now. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was just like, okay, those are the people that you read. And I was like, okay, but who has access to publishing? Like, oh. Mm-hmm oh, these people have access to publishing. Like, who has access to the academy? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, these people have access to the academy. Like, who's grading papers and saying what is valid theology and what it's not? Like, oh, these people are. Mm-hmm. And so you create like a literal boys club inner circle centered on whiteness and then assume that somehow we're going to get theological diversity and truth out of that. It feels like nonsense to me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, that's not totally about how it's like food, but I think there's something about like, no, yeah. If you're never introduced to something, then how can you possibly how can you possibly engage with it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and most of the time there's there's just like a complete like you said like complete like denial of that without ever even really really understanding, you know, where they're coming from or what that specific interpretation is. It's just yeah, it's like this is what we've been doing for this amount of time. It's just like this constant circular, you know, and then there's absolutely no, um, there's no way to get out of that. And I know, so you had said that the, that you got out of the first thing was seeing a woman preacher. And that was like, so what led me out initially as well. Um, you know, just, it started with the whole gender thing. And then, you know, from there, it was just like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, this is how this is interpreted, but wait, how about this? And then this and this, you know? Um, and so, yeah. And, and once you kind of are able to peek your head out a little bit, you start to see that like, wait a minute, you know, there are all sorts of people doing theology. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a little bit like living in a, it feels like if you lived your whole life and it's like the Truman show, like yes. he lives his whole life in a, it's like yeah. the whitest example ever. Wow. <laughs> it was like the Truman show, right? He like lives his whole life in this singular space thinking that that's like what the whole world is. And then he realizes that like, yeah. there's this whole world outside of it and it totally messes with him. Yeah. And like causes a deconstruction of everything that he knows. And I think that's what a lot of it is like for a lot of us is we peek our head out, like you said, then we're like, oh my gosh, my entire worldview has been so small or shaped Mm -hmm. so singularly. And there's so much more that actually feels like it brings life and doesn't just make me feel guilty. So I love God. Exactly. Yeah. Or so I'm trying to not go to hell. Yeah, truly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So talk to me about, I guess... Yeah, like the idea of deconstruction. I know you you mentioned earlier it's like learning and unlearning and but I I get so wary about all of that. And I know that obviously like we're both like, well, we don't want to use that word, but like explain to me like how you understand that. Um, what are your concerns or even, you know, what is the way to move forward for a lot of people? Because I do feel like a lot of a lot of folks kind of just get stuck in that, you know, and they're just kind of floating aimlessly stuck in this like Totally. You know, like you said, nebulous, whatever. Um, so yeah, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that the deconstruction movement is necessary and is existent because of the syncretism of 
Christianity with American politics, at least in, in the in where we're at right now for a lot of folks, um, which is ironic because there's so much separatism, not of this world stickers, like mm-hmm. don't be a part of the culture, like be in, be in the world, not of it yeah. language that tries to keep us from having, yeah, like from experiencing syncretism mm-hmm. or perpetuating in some way. But I think what we didn't realize, or I say we very broadly yeah. in terms of like Christian space right now, we wanted so badly to not be thwarted by the culture that we created a subculture that was more dangerous than the one outside of us. Mm. Um, right. That was, that's purity culture. Mm-hmm. It's the Romans road. It's the bridge. It's scare people into a relationship with Jesus. And, mm. you know, it's that Jesus's death matters more than his life. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. women. Um, submit and be subservient it's that queer folks have no value at the table it's all of that like it's mm-hmm. it's like there was such a strong pull away from the culture that we created an oppressive subculture and so I think the deconstruction movement largely exists because we're told a ton of stories about what God is like what God is supposed to do and how this capitalistic form of spirituality where we do good things and we get good things in return and we do bad things and those bias bad things in return mm-hmm. like where that breaks down at some point mm-hmm. like where i can be holy and pure or whatever i think that is for my whole life and then have traumatic things happen or have yeah. tragedy strike or i pray and pray and pray and that person is not healed yeah and so it feels like decon- the deconstruction happens when the thing that we've been promised the thing that we've been sold the thing that we've been told no longer lives up to the expectations that it promised right mm-hmm. like it, it doesn't live up yeah And I think what deconstruction has been, though, is when one promise is broken, the entire relationship ends. Mm, Yeah. And so to me, it feels like, oh, God didn't come through on what I was told God's end of his bargain was. Mm. Therefore, none of this whole thing is true anymore. Yeah. Um, And when we throw all of that out at once, we throw an entire epistemological framework out the window at one time that has impact on our bodies and our souls and in our in our mental health really yeah um because i'm seeing an intersection for people i'm working with of a rise in mental health crises and deconstruction and i don't say that to blame deconstruction i'm saying that that those i think happen together because like when we throw out entire worldviews it doesn't it's not neutral and so i think that's like i think deconstruction that's what deconstruction is doing is giving space for people to make sense of the ways that particularly evangelicalism and white evangelicalism, to be more specific, has not lived up to the promises that it made on behalf of God and its own institution. Mm. And that's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think that's like the baseline for me on deconstruction. But for me, it's been important in my own unlearning or deconstruction process to not just throw everything out all at once. Yeah. Um, but rather to hold on to like, what are a few things that I know to be true about Jesus. Mm. And for me, they don't have to be like, I think we always pick like the mystical ones, like the resurrection or like the cross. And I'm like, for me, the thing I've been holding on to for the last five years is I actually haven't found a better story than Jesus's. Mm. And I love the wholeness that a a serious look at the life of Jesus brings. Like I love the life of Jesus. I love the sacrifice of Jesus for his friends. I love Mm. the compassion of Jesus. And so even if this whole thing wasn't real, I would still want to follow the way of Jesus. And so I stick around. Yeah. And I think like I still believe a lot of the other things, mm-hmm. but that was like a really good baseline for me. It was like, oh, 
Regardless of anything else, I love Jesus. I love the person of Jesus. And I'll figure out the rest along the way, but that's my baseline. That's the thing I go back to every time. And so I think for me, like that's like what I invite people to do is to not throw out everything all at once, but rather to go like, take the things that you're asking seriously, take the questions you're asking seriously, but be gentle with yourself in the process. Amen. Yeah, I agree. And it's so true. And so as far as like the life of Jesus, talk to me about Jesus and the wholeness of his ministry. You know, when you read about the life of Jesus, when you spend time uh, reflecting on the life of Jesus, teaching your students about the life of Jesus, how do you see like his entire, the entirety of his mission? Like, how would you understand that or, or talk to people about that? Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's uh, two, two things from the beginning of two of the gospel biographies, right? Uh, it's Mark 1, the gospel that Jesus preaches, that he says is the gospel, is that the kingdom of God is here right now. Mm-hmm. Like, that it is here and it is present, and that, like, healing in a different way of being in community and a different way of dealing with money and all of that is available right now. Mm-hmm. Jesus like shows up saying, Hey, this thing is real, it's available if you would go, if you go to the if you go to where it is, if you would find it and seek it out. Um, and Jesus offers kind of this mysterious, right? He goes around in Mark, like doing a bunch of like secret healings and Mm -hmm. secret acts of compassion. And people have to go find him. Like they have Mm -hmm. to ask him questions to get the secrets of the kingdom. They have to approach him to know what the parables are about. And I like that Jesus sets up this dynamic experience of what it means to get to know him. He doesn't just say, like, stare at me and get the right answers or, like, don't do a bunch of stuff. He says, come follow me and discover what the kingdom is like along the way. Mm. And, like, do that through what you're experiencing and what your life has taught you. Um, You see that, right, with the bleeding woman? Mm -hmm. It was like a hero, right? She, like, she pushes through a crowd of people to touch Jesus with this great faith that knows that even though she's never seen a thing happen before, that if she just gets close enough to Jesus that something will happen. And she's right. And so I think there's, like, this journey of discovery that, particularly marginalized folks and women in scripture teach us is like, go seek out Jesus. Cause if you do, it's probably going to be really good. Yeah. Unless you come in with religious baggage or the desire just to be right. In which case you end up like the Pharisees who have a journey of just turning their posture, their bodies away from Jesus and walking a different direction because he challenges their power and control. Mm-hmm. So I think there's like that piece, like mm-hmm. these students, this thing's available now. What would it look like to explore it? Yeah. What would it look like to test out the words of Jesus and to find them to be true for yourself mm. and not just be told that they're true from someone else? Yeah. And then the other piece for me feels like Jesus's first su- sermon in Luke 4, mm. right? That he's come to release the captives, bring sight to the blind. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the Isaiah 61 mm-hmm. uh, image calling back to the Jubilee that we're reading about in Deuteronomy. So it's Jesus saying like, hey, the thing that I'm doing, this justice work, this liberation work, this wholeness work, isn't just a thing that I'm doing. It's a thing that Isaiah was talking about. And Isaiah's like, hey, y'all, you have lost the image of God. You've lost the image of God in each other because you've missed this Jubilee thing. Mm. And Jubilee is pointing back and saying, hey, I want you all to do this thing because your oppression and your obsession with money and stuff and exploiting the land and each other pulls you away from this other image of God that was always about people experiencing wholeness alongside each other and alongside God. Mm. And I think if that's our big picture and our big picture isn't just like you suck. So God had to die to love you, Mm. but it's actually a much more compelling image to live into and actually makes us want to be disciples 
because it makes our work more meaningful than spiritual abstraction. It says like, when I plant a garden, that's kingdom. When I take care of the land, that's kingdom. When I love my neighbor, that's kingdom. When I go to therapy, that's kingdom. Like that's Mm -hmm. God's wholeness coming to me into the world. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, yeah, it's a lot. No, amen. It's like wholeness and human flourishing and every aspect of that. Yeah, in our interpersonal relationships and, and how we engage with the environment. It's a it's a complete wholeness. And you see that exactly like you said, um, in the life of Jesus. He calls us into a, a relational healing and to a physical and a all sorts of a holistic healing. And so I think that's important in communicating the good news, right? Because that is that is good news compared to what what's, yes. we've been con- we've been, you know, convinced to believe good news is. And so I'm curious, I, I started asking some of my guests this uh, at the end of every episode. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. What is something or what are some things that right now that are uh, bringing you hope or that give you hope? Or, or when, you, when you think of, of being hopeful for the church uh, as a whole, what are some things that come to mind? Or yeah, my answer for this is almost always the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's my students. It's that I watch students do the hard work of engaging with their inner lives in such a way that brings life to other people around them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over the last few years, I've watched my chapter go from like 80 or 90% white to like 55% students of color. Mm -hmm. Um, That probably 20 to 30% of my chapter at any given point identifies as queer. Mm -hmm. Um, That we're known as a community on campus who is pursuing justice and that welcomes people really well. And I'm like, man, if we can create a community where that's the case, yeah, I have like a ton of hope for what those students will do in their churches, in their workplaces, in their friendships, in their families. Like, to me, that yeah, to me, that's like a longer, like a longer term picture. Um, and then the other thing I think that gives me hope is just <laughs> this is really, really different, but uh, is comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that comedy has been a saving grace for me during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Like that we can see what's going on and still find ways to be on like the positive side of the feelings wheel yeah (laughs) like when there's when it seems like there's no reason to that we've learned that we're learning to make sense of our experiences through humor through laughter through through all of that as well as through protest and activism and advocacy and all of in all of it Mm -hmm. um but i think for me just like being able to laugh with friends um being able to know that like even though everything's crumbling in a lot of ways, that we're all still here, that yeah. we're, we're doing it, yeah. and that we can laugh together and that be a part of God's yeah, kingdom wholeness that God is inviting us to. So 